From the Kemper Arena in Kansas City, Missouri, it's Milwaukee Bucks against the Kansas City Kings. Now Kansas Citians must decide what happens next. What is to follow the city's Holy Week riot? I am here at the American Royal World Series of Barbecue. Daryl Motley awaits, and the Kansas City Royals are world champions. He is a professor emeritus from the University of Wisconsin, Green Bay. And my friends, every Tuesday on this, your KC Morning Show, me and my brother Harvey K, we take back America, reclaiming that radical, progressive soul of America. Today, Harvey, it's time to talk 2024, yeah? Is it about that time? By the way, I do have an idea. Let's go on record. Josh Foley. His new book is coming out in the next several weeks on manhood. Maybe you and I should deconstruct his manhood. That is the book. <laughs> what if we're not man enough, according to Josh Hawley? Whatever will we do? Uh, we'll talk football. Something I know he cannot do. I saw that tape January 6th of him running. He is not a sprinter, Harvey K. Let's tell these folks how we're going to go about this episode. We're going to do a two-parter. I think the payoff is going to be worth it. This is from The Intercept. Harvey, I know you've read this. April 14th from Ryan Grimm. The kids may or may not be all right, but one thing is clear. They are super into Marianne Williamson. If engagement on TikTok is any indication, a Democratic presidential primary held today among people under 50, Harvey, would result in a landslide for the best-selling author now making her second bid for the nomination. She's posted 65 videos on TikTok, Harvey. Marianne has now drawn more than 11 million views. That's 11 million people hearing about a 21st century economic bill of rights. They're hearing about universal health care and universal education. I know a certain president who hasn't announced he's running for anything. I don't hear him saying this. So that's why we're getting into this. We're going to break down the launch of the Marianne Williamson campaign. Harvey K, what you think about that? Let me be very open and clear about things with our KC Morning listeners. I'm a friend of Marianne Williamson, and I've only become a friend in this past year. And We've become very good friends this past year. When she asked me to come on her podcast to talk about FDR, and then asked me back the very next week to talk about FDR and how he would handle inflation. So we got to know each other. She came out to visit. People will remember John Shelton, my young colleague, labor historian. He hosted an event at the university for the Harvey K. State of Democracy Speaker Series. And Marianne and I spent a couple of days talking about politics, would she run or not? She decided to. We had consultations over the ensuing months. And on Saturday, March 4th, at Union Station in Washington, D.C., to a crowd, I'm not good at estimating crowd size, but it was a massive room full of people of every age, actually, not just the young folks, there to hear her announcement, which they fully expected and rightly expected, was to run for president in favor of the 2024 November elections. 
And I will tell you, the energy in that room was really high. And I'll also tell you, her performance, and I use that word carefully, her performance that day exceeded my expectations. Her role is generally known publicly as you know, a spiritual leader, but she came out as a fighting politician that day. Mm-hmm. A fighting progressive. A fighting progressive politician. And, and here's the thing that really strikes me about her. I'll highlight this. I want to go through elements in her launch speech. Look, I've liked Bernie Sanders since 1980s. I voted for him in primaries. I think he's literally the leader of what has become known as the progressive movement in this country, although many people are getting frustrated by him given his relationship with Biden, but that's beside the point right now. Bernie always frustrated me because he just did not want to talk about history. A couple of times he did fine speeches on the Economic Bill of Rights of FDR and MLK's effort to advance it, but he did those on occasions. He didn't take it on the road with him. He didn't take it on the debates with him. And as a consequence, he let the Democrats I think, actually beat him in some instances. Marianne, from the beginning in our conversation, showed me she has got a historical perspective. She wants to, excuse my using the title of my book, but that's what it's about. She wants to take hold of our history and make, I say, make America radical, and she wants to make America progressive again. And let me show you what I mean. She, early on in the speech, says, it's been said that you can live your life in one of two ways, according to circumstances or according to a vision. We all know the challenging circumstances in America today. What we do now is to create a positive vision for this country that will override the forces of hatred and division that now plague us. By the way, did this speech from the heart and mind. She did not read it off a teleprompter or a script on a podium. So after having said that, this need for a vision, she says, the key to our deliverance in the present lies in a deeper understanding about some things in our past. We need to understand the American story where as a generation and where we fit into it. Now, this is the key thing, and you're all going to hear this speech. That's going to be the greater part of this particular episode, and then we'll come back to some of her policies in in the ensuing episode. But she doesn't just harp on the exploitation and oppression, you know, the tragedies of the past. She also talks about the progressive dynamic, the progressive promise, and how Americans have struggled and pursued that promise. And I have to tell you, that's the kind of thing I always wanted Bernie to do. And he just he just couldn't talk about the past. He actually told people that I know that he doesn't like talking about the past, but nevertheless. So she says, basically what she says is, if we're going to make history in the present, we have to understand the history that we carry, both the history of, if you like, the tragedies, the exploitation, the oppression, but also the history of the struggles. So she starts, and so many folks on the left don't start here. The folks on the right who want to hijack our history, like Hawley, for example, she says right here, our story began as an established nation in 1776. Some very brave men got together and signed a document called the Declaration of Independence. I won't read all of her words for that because you'll hear it when Hartzell and I hand over to, to her voice. But she talks about the fact that these guys were literally putting their necks on the line. But of course, there was a contradiction in all of this. And that is that a good too many of them were slaveholders themselves. And the paradox of the American story begins at that moment. But they did, and I'm now using my own words, they did lay out a promise that was bigger than they were. And that's the promise that led struggle upon struggle in pursuit of that promise to enhance the possibilities. And along the way, victories were secured. So if I can just jump here some way into her speech, and the audience loved this. She says, 
It is true that America has a shadow side, but we shouldn't forget the extraordinary light that lies at the core of our founding principles. But it is every generation's responsibility to try to continue the work of creating a more perfect union, to live out the struggles inherent in our national story. I mean, this is to take hold of our history that I'm talking about. And then she says, it is simply our turn now. And to me, that's the campaign. That is the campaign, our turn or our time now. Listen to this. We responded to slavery with abolition. We responded to the institutional suppression of women with the women's suffragist movement. We responded to the ravages of the Gilded Age with the New Deal and the labor movement. And we responded to the evils of segregation with the civil rights movement. That's the kind of speech she gave. Now, she didn't fail to point out the devastation that's too often prevailing, not only out on the streets, but in people's lives in this country. But after she does all that, she reminds us of the likes of Franklin Roosevelt. She goes back to the likes of Lincoln. And even more importantly, she comes back to this. Only we, the people, can turn this around. And we're doing that from the resurgence of the labor movement to the bravery of environmental activists, from protests against racial and police injustice to the movements for indigenous rights, food security, gender liberty, and women's rights. The American spirit is asserting itself and the American people are rising up. The American people are not the problem. The American people are just fine. And she reminds us the American people are not the problem. It's the corporate neoliberal elite. And you'll hear her talk about that. Now, the one last thing is she came back over and over again. The American Revolution is never over. And I thought to myself, boy, she gets it. She's doing exactly what I, what I have to say to you. I encouraged her to do. I knew she already had these things in her head. And I was encouraging her to make exactly those points. I walked out of that room extremely proud of her and a little bit proud of myself because I thought this is the candidate thinking wisely, perhaps. I referenced that Intercept article early on. And, you know, one of the things I maybe disagree with a little bit with Ryan Grimm and his assessment, you know, he says that she's taking a bit of the self-help and mixing politics. I would push back on that. I would say what she's doing is harnessing the progressive promise, which is always the American promise, and inserting politics into that. And that's what I think is bringing in these young folks on Twitter and on TikTok. We say it every week on this show. If you go back in our history, the progressive playbook, it resonates and it works for the new generation. You and I have been saying this now, was it two years, I think, we've been going at this, right? And I have to say that she has the ability to articulate a decidedly very personal message that will resonate with people. But she's not talking here about self-help. It's not self-help. She's talking right. about collective energy. Right. And that's the thing people need to hear. And I, I think the Ryan Grimm piece was good, but inadequate. In fact, in some cases, just wrong-headed. And I think that self-help reference is an example of that. But you are right from the very top. I said to Mary, should I download this TikTok app? <laughs> no, you don't have to. And then Crystal Ball, of all people, said, download the app. I downloaded the app. I turned it on. And basically, I didn't understand a f***ing way it worked. <laughs> I just love that I now know that we have on the record that Crystal Ball got Harvey K to get TikTok. I love <laughs> that so much. Before we hit play on this audio, though, Harvey, you know, you have read the previous works of Marianne. You said going back to the late 90s. Not the spiritual stuff, the more political stuff. What do you notice now that's maybe the biggest difference from the Marianne then to the Marianne we have now who's running for president? Let me make it clear in case she's listening at any point to this. <laughs> Those of us who come to politics and political ideas, we all bring to it certain kinds of motivations and certain kinds of if you like, aspirations. Now, I'll make it clear. I'm not at all spiritual in the way Marianne Williamson's life has been. 
Okay. In fact, I jokingly say to people, I think I've only used the word spiritual 12 times in my life. In this episode, I may have used it already 12 <laughs> times, but I will tell you that the origins of my politics, I'm convinced, come from my grandfather's reading to me Old Testament Bible stories when I was a little kid wow. before I could read. And he presented it in a way that made it stories of exploitation, oppression, and also liberation, and, you know, exodus and, and liberation. Moreover, he would weave into those times that he and I would talk when I was very small as growing up on the Lower East Side of New York as this, you know, young Jewish kid, and also the socialists that influenced him as he was growing up, that kind of stuff. He was not at any point a very political guy as a lawyer necessarily, but it is the case that he carried with him, if you like, that socialist ideal, I think, or at least the progressive ideal, as crazy as his legal career was. So having said that, we all bring our own, if you like, story and she brings a story which is a real commitment to people's needs and spiritual needs and material needs. But I really have seen something this last, well, I've only known her for the year, I've seen this development where she was talking to me on occasion about her own father and grandfather who were political. In fact, I think her grandfather was a union organizer in Michigan for a while. So it's not that she wouldn't have been aware of all that, she was fully aware of it. But it's also the case, she seemed to want to make more of that side of her. I think she realized that, look, we're on a neoliberal edge, right? That neoliberal edge has already given us the rise of fascism in America. And this has been going on, as I've said over and over again, for 45 years of this war on the achievements of the 1930s and the 1960s of working people, of women and people of color, especially African-Americans. So the fact is that after 45 years of this class war and culture war, on the democratic achievements of the middle of the 20th century, she saw that and she came to realize that her spiritual needs are such that she wanted to become all the more outspoken in terms of the American story and American politics. That's my understanding. I'm a friend and I'm an advisor. No one's given me the title of surrogate that I can speak on her behalf just yet, okay? Well, I've gotten a chance, thanks to you, Harvey K. I've gotten a chance to chat with Marianne a few times. I've been blown away. And now, my friends, after having that great introduction, you've teed us up. Professor K, should we hit play on this? Please do. If my finger were long enough, I'd press it for you. Hit and play on this, the presidential launch campaign speech for one Marianne Williamson. We're going to be back next week, myself and Professor K, breaking down the policies. If you want to follow along, go to Marianne's website, Marianne2024.com. But first, take a listen to this. Harvey K, back next week, my brother. Can't wait. Everyone, please welcome Mr. Jimmy Demers. Beautiful for spacious skies, for amber waves of grain, for Majesties above the free
God shed your grace on thee and crowned thy good with brotherhood from sea see the shining Thank you. Thank you. It is with the greatest privilege I have to introduce each and every one of you to my friend, Marianne Williamson. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you all of you for being here. Thank you for coming. I know some of you actually came from somewhat far away, some of you from other places in the country. I also want to thank those of you who are on live stream, who have joined me here today for what I hope will feel like a meaningful conversation. Martin Luther King said that our lives begin to end on the day that we stop talking about things that matter. And we are here today to talk about something that matters a lot and that is the United States of America. Now, we're all here because we care about this country, but we're all here, or at least many of us are, because we are upset about this country. We're worried about this country. We're concerned about this country. And we know that this country is plagued by many challenges now, not the least of which is hatred and division, which is greater than any of us have experienced in our national life. And it is our job to create a vision of justice and love that is so powerful that it will override the forces of hatred and injustice and fear that are there. It's one thing, though, to say that we're here because we want to do that. It's another thing to know, how do we do that? And as one young man who might be in the audience today, with such youthful sincerity, once said to me, he said, Marianne, what are we going to do? But what I've learned in my life is that the first question isn't always, what do I do? The first question is often, what do I need to understand? And before the United States or any of us can know what it is we need to do, we need to know what it is we need to understand. This country is drowning in information and starving for understanding. <laughs> what we need to understand is the American story. 
And so just as when sometimes you're trying to understand your own life better by looking at your parents, at your grandparents, at your ancestors, it's time for us to look at the entire sweep of the American story, to understand better our past, that we might better understand where we are now. We need to know what do we owe our ancestors and what do we know our descendants. And we can't know any of that until we see where we stand in the midst of the larger scope of the American story. Now, the American story began as an established nation in 1776. And in 1776, some very brave men, yes, they were very brave, because if the British had won the war, all of them would have been hanged as traitors against the King of England. 56 men who came together and signed a document that infused the founding of a nation in a way that had never occurred before with the idea, repudiating the idea of the divine right of kings, repudiating the idea of an aristocracy, repudiating the idea that a few would be able to suck up the resources of the country and make everyone else nothing more than an economic surf. They repudiated that. And they declare that all men are created equal, that all men are given by God inalienable rights of life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness. They declare that it's the job of government to secure those rights, and that if government isn't doing its job, then the people have the right to alter it or to abandon it. Now, that was extraordinary, of course, but it's also where the story got very gnarly. For out of the 56 men who signed that document, 41 of them were slave owners. So that dichotomy between the extraordinarily enlightened principles, enlightened principles politically and enlightened principles morally, on which we purport to stand, is often at odds with forces within our country who usually, for their own economic purposes, have no intention whatsoever of seeing those principles actualized and have proven in every generation, even unto ours, that they will go to the most violent lengths to make sure they don't. ladies and gentlemen, and everyone else, is the American story. That dichotomy, that split mind, which is American consciousness, is baked into the cake. And it has been with us from the beginning, and every generation of Americans reiterates the story. What we are going through right now is baked into the cake here. It is no different than what other generations have faced, but I'm here to say to you, other generations stood up and pushed back, and now it's our turn. That's what we need to do. We need to identify the problems in our past, but we need to identify with the problem solvers in our past. We responded to slavery with abolition. We responded to the institutionalized oppression of women with the women's suffrage movement. We responded to the Gilded Age with the establishment of the labor movement and the New Deal. We responded to segregation with the civil rights movement, and it is our turn now.
once again, we have to understand what's happening here. Because for the abolitionists, the problem was the institution of slavery. For the women suffragists, it was the fact that we didn't have women's suffrage. You needed to pass a constitutional amendment. We needed to establish the labor movement. We knew that the problem was segregation. And so you needed the civil rights movement. You needed civil rights legislation. You needed voting rights legislation. The reason we have such a problem today is because it is not one specific institution that plagues us and that opposes real democracy and that opposes the equality of people and of economic justice, that opposes the very principles on which we stand. It's not one institution this time. It's like an atomizer spray of economic injustice. It is over here. It's Flint, Michigan. It's Flint, Michigan over here. And it's waters drying up and aquifers and rivers drying up in the American South over here. It's mass incarceration over there. It's 68,000 people who die every year from lack of health care over here. It's no one particular thing. And so it's easy to gaslight us and we play whack-a-mole if we could just get that fixed, if we could just get that fixed. No, the opponent is not a specific situation or circumstance. The opponent is an economic mindset. The opponent is an economic mindset that has had its grip on this country for the last 50 years. Over the last 48 years, there has been $50 trillion of wealth that has been transferred from the bottom 90% to the top 1% of people in this country. This country is now in the grip of an economic mindset, whatever you call it. Some people call it neoliberalism. Some people call it free market capitalism. Some people call it crony capitalism. Some people call it hyper-capitalism. Let me tell you something. It's neither real capitalism nor is it a free market. It is a sociopathic economic system. It is a sociopathic economic system. That in policy after policy after policy, make sure that those who already have will probably get more and those who do not have will have a hard time even surviving. I remind you that in the 1970s, the average American worker had decent benefits and could afford a home and could afford a yearly vacation and could afford a car and could afford to send their kids to college. Before the 1960s, tuition was free at state colleges and universities. That was then and this is now. This did not just fall out of the sky, this is by design. And that design is now baked into the cake in this town. In this town where there are three times more corporate lobbyists than there are legislators in Washington, D.C. This philosophy, this economic mindset now has its grip on this country. It has its tentacles in every aspect of our lives. It has its grip on this government. This government is now more than not a system of legalized bribery. And this system will not change itself. The status quo, ladies and gentlemen, and everyone else will not disrupt itself. That's our job. remember that Abraham Lincoln standing on the battlefield at Gettysburg, speaking of the men who had died there fighting for the Union, said that they had given their last full measure of devotion so that a government of the people, by the people, and for the people would not 
perish from the earth. It's time for us to look in the mirror as Americans and face the very painful fact Government of the people, by the people, and for the people is perishing now. This government is now a government of the corporations, by the corporations, and for the corporations. <laughs> Why does one in four Americans carry medical debt? Why is it that 18 million Americans cannot fulfill the prescriptions that are given them by their doctors? Why is it that 68,000 Americans die in this country every year for lack of health care? Why? Because we don't have universal health care, just like every other advanced democracy. These positions, such as universal health care, such as tuition-free college, higher education and tech school, such as free child care, such as paid family leave and sick pay, such as a guaranteed living wage, and such as a 21st century economic bill of rights, those are moderate positions in every other country. Every other country has them. They are mainstream. Ladies and gentlemen, hear me when I tell you this. The American people have been trained to expect so little, the American people have been played. But this is a new time in America. And many people who realize, even if they themselves are not living at the effect of all of this entrenched injustice, know that the fact that that entrenched injustice exists is an unsustainable position. I'm so glad that President Trump did not win the last election. That means we didn't go over the cliff. But I'll tell you something, we're still six inches away from it. We are six inches. We are six inches away from the cliff in terms of the state of our democracy. We are six inches away from the cliff in terms of the state of our environment. We are six inches away from the cliff in terms of the state of our economy. This is not something where you can just tweak it here and have an incremental approach there and try to change things here and a little bit there. Oh, that'll work fine for the 20% of Americans for whom the economy is basically okay. But those 20%, those of us who live on that island of 20% of Americans for whom things are basically good are surrounded by a vast sea of economic anxiety and despair. We don't need any more evidence that this system is intrinsically corrupt. We can see it in the broken windows. We can see see it in the shadow factories. We can see it in the addiction-addled brokenness of our fellow citizens. We can see it in the despair. We can see it in the addiction. We can see it in the anxiety. We can see it in the depression. And people in this town, if they will not care enough to fix, to solve the problems that produces all that despair, Half the people in this city don't even notice it. They are so buffered from the ravages of human suffering, they don't even mention the word poor. They don't even mention the word poverty, much less address its deeper causes. So some people in this city just don't even seem to care. Some people in this city, with some very brave exceptions, apparently don't have the spine or the moral courage to fix it. Ladies and gentlemen, let me in there. I will. the thing. The American people are up for the job. The American people are ready for the task. 
the American people, look at all the people protesting environmental injustice. Look at all the people who are trying to take stands against the injustices of things like Cop City, things like the death of environmental activists, people who are reforming and revitalizing the labor movement in this country, people who are showing new ways to do agriculture, standing up for indigenous rights, standing up for women's rights, standing up for gender liberty, standing up for all of the things that America should be standing for because it represents equality, equality of economic opportunity, social opportunity, political opportunity. Yet the political system as it now exists is institutionally resistant to profound solutions when they do not serve the short-term economic profit maximization of large-term, large-form corporate systems, which are the donors and are the people who rule this town. And so it's not like we don't have the solutions. There are people in this town who have the solutions. There are people all over this country who have the solutions. But the people who are in power either don't have the solutions or do not deeply support the solutions. And people who have the solutions do not have the power. Once again, let the people get in there. We'll handle it from here. And so... I asked you to come here today and to join with me, both those of you who are here live and those of you who are on live stream. I have run for president before. I am not naive. I'm not naive about the forces which have no intention of allowing anyone into this conversation who does not align with their predetermined agenda. I understand that in their mind, only those people whose careers have been entrenched in the car that drove us into this ditch should possibly be considered qualified to lead us out of this ditch. But I reject that notion. And those pseudo-sophisticates who give us their PR about how they're the adults, you see, and people like myself and people like most of you should really sit down now. They would have us think this whole thing is just too complicated. No, ladies and gentlemen, the problem is not that it's complicated. The problem is that it is corrupt. And to those who feel that they are the adults in the room, they are the sophisticates in the room, and the rest of us should simply sit down and let them run things. Yes, where they have run things is to where we are now. To them I say, you are neither sophisticated nor a true grown-up. A real grown-up does not knowingly allow a child to go hungry. emergency level just transition from a dirty economy to a clean economy and an emergency level just transition from a war economy to a peace economy. None of those fundamental changes are going to happen, however, until and unless we the people step in. No one person can fix it. This is a time of collective effort. All of us are necessary in whatever way our heart leads us to serve. This is not a time, however, to just ask, what can I get? It's time to ask, how can I serve? I'm not saying that one person can fix it. I'm not saying even one president can fix it. But let me tell you something, a president who lays it down and says it like it is would do a lot of good.
so I'm here today again with my deep thanks for your coming here. I have a request to make. I, as of today, am a candidate for the office of President of the United States. guided by the words of Franklin Delano Roosevelt, who said that a necessitous man is not a free man. Not every chain is visible. It is time for us to release the shackles that are on the 64% of Americans who are living paycheck to paycheck. It is time for us to do what other generations have done. And Franklin Roosevelt said that we would not have to worry about a fascist takeover, he said, as long as democracy delivered on its blessings. Given the economic situation of far too many Americans today, given the behavior of, of this corporate matrix, whether it has to do with insurance companies, big pharmaceutical companies, big oil companies, big agricultural companies, big food companies, big chemical companies, or the military industrial complex and the defense contractors that they serve, they have had their day. Corporate tyranny will end now. Only if you. We will not be able to say to the American people in 2024 that we're helping you enough already and we'll help you more because things are basically pretty good. That will not be strong enough to push back the neo-fascist neo authoritarian threat that is in our midst. We need to remember what Franklin Roosevelt said. We will not have to worry about that threat as long as democracy delivers on its blessings. We don't need to do anything other than stand for democracy, stand for the principles of the Declaration of Independence, stand for the best within us, reject within ourselves the, the nihilism, reject within ourselves the cynicism, reject within ourselves the personal anger. We must remember what Martin Luther King said. We must conduct our struggle on the high plane of dignity and discipline. And it is from that place that I request your donations, I request your volunteerism, I request your help, and I say to you now, again, hear me, it's our turn. Let's do this. Thank you very, very, very much. Think we better listen to these kids. We can keep pretending. We know what we're doing I can't keep pretending I'm afraid If you'll sit and listen I'll tell you a secret
think we'd better listen to these kids I can't keep pretending that I'm still asleep And I can't keep pretending I'm afraid It's too stone to call you But I thought that you'd say